Turn now to our sermon text in Exodus chapter 31. Exodus chapter 31 in verse 1. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. And I have filled him with the spirit of God and wisdom and understanding and knowledge and in all manner of workmanship to design artistic works, to work in gold and silver and bronze in cutting jewels for setting, in carving wood and to work in all manner of workmanship. And I, indeed I, have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahishamach of the tribe of Dan. And I have put wisdom in the hearts of all the gifted artisans that they may make all that I have commanded you, the tabernacle of meeting, the ark of the testimony, and the mercy seat that is on it, and all the furniture of the tabernacle, the table and its utensils, the pure gold lampstand with all of its utensils, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with all of its utensils, and the laver and its base, the garments of ministry, the holy garments for Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons, the minister as priests, and the anointing oil and sweet incense for the holy place. According to all that I have commanded you, they shall do. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak also to the children of Israel, saying, Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep. For it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. For whatever does any, whoever does any work on it, That person shall be cut off from among his people. Work shall be done for six days. But the seventh is the Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Therefore the children of Israel shall keep the Sabbath to observe the Sabbath throughout their generations as a perpetual covenant. It is a sign between me and the children of Israel forever. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, and on the seventh day he rested and was refreshed. And when he had made an end of speaking with him on Mount Sinai, he gave Moses two tablets of the testimony, tablets of stone written with the finger of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we are thankful that we suffer no dearth of the word of God. We know that there were times before the completion of the written testimony, the written canon of God, that the word of God was rare, and Lord, the people famished without it. And even today, Lord, we know there are places in which his word is not opened, and if it is opened, it is ignored and twisted. But Heavenly Father, as for us, there is no dearth, but rather a a plentitude, so much so, Lord, that it is hard for us to, to take it in. And we pray, Heavenly Father, that you grant us, therefore, the ability in our simplicity and in our relative lack of intelligence and wisdom and rather our foolishness and sin, that you in the power of your spirit would grant us to receive this word to our blessing and to your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we carry on in our series in Exodus, moving swiftly on, it seems now, to Exodus chapter 31. 
And even as should be apparent, as you look down on your page, it is very evenly divided between two sections. Sometimes I disagree not only with the, the, the chapter divisions, but also of the section divisions. But I, I would imagine every last one of our Bibles has probably got it right. And it's just about evenly split between two things. And I'm going to take the opportunity uh, to leverage that in the structure of this sermon. Now, the first section has to do with Bezalel and Aholiab, the skillful artisans whom God called and commissioned and appointed to lead in making the, the tabernacle and all of its furnishings. They weren't the only ones. We have mention of the other workmen that were part of it, um, and we have reference to many who were involved, and that would later be echoed in the building of the temple. But they were the leaders. They were the ones that were particularly given to this work. Now, let me just say, first of all, that this was a remarkable act of God's providence, right? Because remember, the whole nation was pretty much in chattel slavery, and what was their, their work, right? It wasn't goldsmithing. It wasn't making watches. It was making bricks uh, for gigantic building projects. Uh, it, it was very much unskilled labor. And so it wasn't merely that they lacked the material. It was amazing providence of God that, that they plundered the Egyptians on their way out. Of all the unbelievable things that God promises before the Exodus, one of the most unbelievable is he says, oh, by the way, on your way out, you're going to, to take all the, you know, you're going to take a bunch of their, their gold and, and precious gems and so forth and silver. And it's un, unimaginable that they should even be let go in the first place, let alone that they would go with gifts in their hands. But they did. And God had a reason for it in order precisely to be used in the tabernacle. Well, I, I say that was a remarkable providence, but none, no less so was somebody to work with this material because they had no opportunity whatsoever to do it. So I doubt very much so whether there was a single one who would know what to do with any of this stuff at all. Um, but God changed that. God, in his, uh, as he did with everything else that they needed in the desert. And let me say, that's the wonderful thing about God taking them and bringing them in the desert, is there they were in complete dependence, having nothing. God demonstrated his ability to provide even that, the spirit of wisdom and knowledge needed to work skillfully with these materials. And so he filled Bezalel with his Holy Spirit to do that. And I think I, I may be right in saying now, this is the first one in Scripture that was said specifically to be filled with the Holy Spirit to do this particular work. So this Holy Spirit-filled work is very much holy work. That's the first half. And right after that, we have another section uh, having to do with, the, in this case, the Sabbath. Now, there are several sections in Scripture, several texts having to do with the Sabbath. We've already seen more than one, of course, particularly within the Ten Commandments. But such is his importance and such is our forgetfulness of this, such is our, our, um, our common tendency to lay these things aside, God repeats these things for us. And that's what I want to do tonight. So in fact, I would say it's one of the strongest statements on the need to observe the Sabbath day. But rather than treat either of these things on its own, I'm going to take the opportunity of actually having both of these things here in equal measure to preach together on that one subject. Because remember, the fourth commandment is not limited to one day. It doesn't have to do just with what we do today. It actually governs all of our time. Six days work. In fact, that's repeated here in this, this text for us. And the seventh, um, then we rest. 
But God governs all of our time. And it's the same heart that says, no, I'm not going to let you tell me what to do in terms of work on the rest of the week. That says, I'm not going to let you tell me what to do in terms of rest and worship on the Lord's day. And so, therefore, it is absolutely possible to sin against God in terms of the fourth commandment on each and every one of the days of the week. Now, I say, I think that probably we struggle more about this than at any other time in our history. Precisely because of all the technology that we have and the relative prosperity, we are not locked into so much of an automatic schedule. There would have been times in which we all would be going to to work at pretty much the same time and all coming back with just enough time really to to have dinner, to get uh, clean things up a bit and and go to sleep and uh, have family worship, wake up the next day and, and do it all again. And we would be so tired that we would be very glad to have the Sabbath day to rest. And it would be, I don't say... Uh, straightforward. I don't say automatic because that such is the sin of man that that's never been the case. But it would be easier for us to keep the fourth commandment. But not today. The opposite, the absolute opposite is the case. And again, because of prosperity, because of strange work schedules, because particularly of technology, we are continually uh, in danger of, of failing to observe uh, God's requirements with regard to the use of our time. So we desperately need this. And I hope it will be of use to us. Children, I've really helped you out this time. Um, really. So that the title of this sermon is Holy Work, Holy Rest. And can anyone guess what the two points are? Holy Work and Holy Rest. And I'm going to find every one of you children and make sure that you know it. Even the littlest of us can surely know this one. Holy Work, Holy Rest. Okay. All right. First of all, holy work. In verse 1, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, See, I have called by name Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, of the tribe of Judah. Hur, does anybody remember that name? Well, of course, we ought to, because Bezalel was in all probability uh, the grandson of Hur, that same Hur who held up Moses' arms back in Exodus 17. I'll just remind us of Exodus 17.10. So Joshua did as Moses said to him, which was to go fight the war. Uh, Joshua did as Moses said to him and fought with Amalek. And Moses, Aaron, and Hur went up to the top of the hill. And so it was when Moses held up his, his hand that Israel prevailed. And when he let down his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands became heavy, so they took a stone and put it under him. And he sat on it. And Aaron and Hur supported his hands, one on one side, the other on the other side, and his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. So Joshua defeated Amalek and his people with the edge of the sword. And friends, I don't want to repeat that sermon, but it's quite a group effort. In fact, that kind of gives us some basic parameters to understand how God deals with this, this earth. Yes, he has, particularly, he has particular leaders, and Moses, we know from this morning, was a type of Christ. But it was a group effort. He gifted other people in different ways. He has one military officer, Joshua, go lead the military to do their work. And then not only does he have Moses, but he has these helpers on either side to uphold his hands of blessing and of prayer, and, and he has both Aaron and her to do this. Well, that's its own wonderful thing. But here's an example then of her's godly heritage, in that his grandson should be called to this work. 
And let me say again, it is calling because that's what it says. See, I have called by name Bezalel, son of Uri. That's really, really important. We know about the idea of calling. We know, for instance, that God calls his elect people to salvation. And that's its own kind of vocation. That's its own kind of effectual calling is what we say. Um, we know that, that uh, the Lord Jesus, speaking of his role as shepherd, says, I know my sheep in the Gospel of John, and I call them out by name, which is such a wonderful thing, calls us out by name. Well, likewise, we know about um, the calling to the ministry. We speak of that frequently. God does call some men, I know of, of this myself, and I know of other men like this, calls us specifically to the ministry. But is that all he calls to? Well, we'd have to say, no, also the ruling elders, he surely does that. Also the deacons, he surely does that. Well, those are the officers of the church, anybody else? Well, actually, we in the Protestant and in, in Reformed tradition know that he actually does this in every lawful vocation. He can and he does call people to do all the things that he does um, that we find represented, for instance, in this church. All right? Now, let me say, this is the Reformation understanding of vocation because it's certainly not the Roman Catholic idea. You know that among the many, many, many contributions of the many recoveries of the Protestant Reformation has to do with an idea of vocation. For the Catholics, the only thing you could be called to is the religious life. And what does that mean? It means being a monk or a nun. And God has called you to that. And maybe, just maybe, you could maybe be called to be a secular priest. And for the, what is that? Well, meaning a priest that works at a local church as opposed to a, a monk. But for everyone else, you just have randomly grouped yourself into the non-called group, and God could care less what you do um, with some very few exceptions. It's certainly not particularly God-glorifying or honoring or something that you're particularly called to do. But the, the Protestant reformers, Luther and particularly Calvin, reversed this. And instead said, no, God calls us into all this lawful labor. They saw the ill fruits of all this, by the way, the wickedness of the, the nuns and the, the monks, for one thing, because God didn't actually. It's the one thing they think that God called them to is one thing we can be certain that in the Bible God doesn't call us to, which is a life of doing nothing. Um, God doesn't call us to do that. And, in this, and he saw, they, the reformers saw how devalued uh, work and how lazy the typical Roman Catholics were, and, and how much they had to be prodded to do things. And in fact, their, their work year were just filled with one crazy uh, saint's holiday after another, um, and, and very little true work was done, and, and uh, there was much ill fruit of these things. But no, we recovered, and we must recover today in this generation, an understanding of God's vocation on all kinds of lawful work. Now, of course, God doesn't call you into something that's unlawful, illegal, immoral. But for everything else under the sun, we need somebody to do it. And God can and does call people to do these things. Well, there's a calling of God upon this. There's a godly heritage. There's a calling of God upon this specific man. And then there's a filling with the Spirit. You see, that's, that's very necessary, isn't it? If it's something important, if it's something that really needs to be done so that God calls somebody in to do it, he also then needs to provide what is necessary to do it. And in this case, it's the Holy Spirit. Verse 3, I have filled him with the Spirit of God. And again, it is an amazing thing. Right? We read in Ephesians 5 about you need to be filled with the Spirit. 
And, and we as Christians rightly talk a lot about being filled with the Spirit. And we understand that it doesn't have to do with speaking in some nonsense language. It has to do with, with the Word of God dwelling richly in our hearts. It has to do with speaking to one another and making melody in our hearts and reminding each other of the, the wonderful uh, promises of the Gospel. That's one of the things that we do, by the way, when we worship Right? When we, we take these psalms and hymns in our hands and we sing, we are singing yes to God, we worship Him. But to one another, we are reminding each other of these promises. And that has much to do with this filling of the Spirit. Well, we need to be filled with the Spirit to be good worshipers. But our text reminds us that we need to be filled with the Spirit in order to be effective workmen. I have filled Him with the Spirit of God in wisdom, in understanding, in knowledge. And in all manner of workmanship. Again, we can see it so starkly and, and completely in a time in which there was no tradition. It wasn't that he grew up knowing these disciplines, knowing these trades. God had to impart this wisdom and knowledge and understanding. But we understand that in every job, there are things that are beyond our experience. And what is needed is that kind of not just technical skill in the sense of having known something in the past, but to be able to grasp and to understand and to carry out something uh, that we're doing now. And God, you, through his Holy Spirit, did this. Now, let me say that uh, we may ask the question, well, is this a one-off? Is there any other applicability than this one man which he filled with the Spirit for this, this idea of workmanship? Well, let me say also in verse 6, his partner, and I indeed have appointed with him Aholiab, the son of Ahisamach of the tribe of Dan, and I have put wisdom in the hearts of all who are gifted artisans, that they may make all that I've commanded you. Now, friends, how is he going to put wisdom in anybody's heart? Is it some sort of substance like this water, and he hands it in a physical way? No, we know that the Spirit of God is the Spirit of wisdom. And if they are to be, if God is to fill someone with wisdom, it must be through the Holy Spirit. And we're not surprised and to find these texts in concert, working one with another to confirm the fact that surely then all who meet this description of gifted artisans, God has filled indeed and used his Holy Spirit in that sense to, to, to give them that skill. Now, I'm sure that for some this is a surprising uh, doctrine of Scripture. And I myself found it a difficult one, um, except I would have more so today and this week. But, of course, I've, I've, I've come into contact with the, the Reformers and the Puritans, and particularly Jonathan Edwards. And Jonathan Edwards, for instance, had a very all-embracive understanding of the work of the Spirit. Uh, so much so that if there's anything good and notable that has ever been attained by human civilization, he says, there's the Spirit of God. Right? So let's take the example that in his own day, we know that the rationalists were trying to, uh, to work against Christianity and say, we don't need a special revelation. We can just use reason, and reason should be sufficient, right? because they want to destroy the Bible. Well, and they say, well, look at the, the achievements of the ancient Greek philosophers. Obviously, they didn't need any special revelation. They didn't need God. They just came up with these things on their own. And Edward says, well... No, actually, I tend to think that inasmuch as they were speaking anything that is of permanent validity and truth, objective truth, that they received that from the Holy Spirit. Now, not salvifically, he makes it very clear about that. It's not that they were saved by this Holy Spirit. 
But the Holy Spirit does all kinds of things, right? In the very creation of this world, what was it that was hovering over the, the chaos and waters? It was a spirit who then made order and beauty out of that chaos. And so it is today, friends, that under the heading of common grace, all throughout this world, anything that remains of, of the milk of human kindness or of any kind of beauty, you say, you, give, you can rightly give glory to God. You say, surely God's spirit somehow moved, even if this man was not a Christian, to, to, to build this beautiful building or to, in otherwise, make this beautiful clothing or to, you, you see even of people of other religions loving and doing things that are admirable. And we say, that's a work of God's spirit. How does that detract from God's glory? It doesn't. It adds to it. Because apart from that, you'd have to say that utterly apart from any of the workings of God, people are capable of all kinds of wonderful things. But no, when we understand this non-salvific work of the Spirit under the heading of common grace, we all glory must necessarily go to God. All sin belongs to the people, but all glory belongs to God. Well, I hope that's of, of use for us in these things. As I say, again, I put wisdom in the hearts of all who are gifted artisans, that they may make all that I've commanded you. And as I say, we know the Spirit of God is a spirit of wisdom. And this, this, this work of the Spirit, if that's true even for non-believers out there, and I, I think it probably is, how much more so is this important for God's people to be assured as we are called into difficult vocations that when we pray, it's, we're not just wasting our breath. Right? You understand how, how essential this is. Because apart from that, if we were to say, look, the only people that God ever really fills with their spirit in terms of their work are people like me who are preachers, then good luck. What, you, you guys are all on your own. And day by day for six days, you're utterly at your own resources for doing the extremely difficult things that you do. But no, no one believes that, Right? No one believes that, which is why we're constantly praying for wisdom and strength and courage to do the things that we need to do. And we understand that those things are imparted by the Spirit of God. And that gives us hope then that not only does God value these things because he calls us in it, but he then empowers us and gives us the resources necessary to do the things that he calls us to do. That's the Reformed doctrine of vocation. So there is such a thing as holy work. But secondly, there is also holy rest. And here we turn to that second section beginning in verse 12. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, Speak also to the children of Israel saying, Surely my Sabbaths you shall keep. For it is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know I am the Lord who sanctifies you. First of all, again, I love the, the symmetry. First, he speaks to them of work and of workmen and of what is necessary to do it and of the importance and the resources and all the rest of it. And now he speaks also to them of rest. And surely this is the nature of our gracious God. Well, he says it's a sign. It's a sign. I don't know if you consider the nature of the Sabbath as a sign, but it's something I, I, I grow continually in my appreciation of. The express thing about this is that you may know that I am the Lord who sanctifies you. And so somehow it is that every time we observe the Sabbath day, as we are doing right now, 
somehow we are acknowledging or God wishes to remind us that it is he who sanctifies us, meaning he who sets us apart from the world, he who cleans us up, he who saves us, he who does this work of sanctification, not we ourselves. Friends, I don't know how many different ways there are to explain it. There must be, oh, who knows how many ways that the Sabbath is itself a picture of the gospel. It really is the gospel itself. It's like a gospel day. It's not just a day in which the gospel is preached, but in every sort of way it is in which the gospel is manifested and demonstrated. That it is not we who save ourselves. It is God who does it. It's not we, not just in terms of justification, right? That maybe, maybe we're okay on that. Some of us still need to, to be very clear on that. That our, our justification, the way in which we are saved and declared righteous, is entirely the work of Christ and not at all any of our work. But even beyond that, the work of sanctification, that work by which we are moved from being dirty and ugly and being cleaned up to being beautiful and pure, and we become more and more in the image of Christ, which is, again, the whole, the whole point you know, why is it that Christians come to church? There's a long, long list of reasons. I mean, sometimes you would, you would go to some church and you think the only thing that you ever, that the only thing is that you come in once to hear the gospel get saved and it's kind of, you know, optional as to whether you ever show up again because that's the only thing they care about is justification. But no, the, this work of the word is to call people into life and thereafter to transform them into the image of Christ. And there's just so many natural images of these things. Um, I recently had uh, Daniel do some beautiful work in our, our dining room and to, to paint and uh, made me think of uh, the beautiful floor that we have on it. And uh, you can actually tell exactly where the sunlight has been. Um, that's true of some other things too. If you ever have some any kind of lettering on something and you try to take the lettering off on natural wood, there is a precise image actually burned onto the wood by the sun. That's the way God has designed it. And actually, although it's imperceptible, that works on every substance we know of. Given enough time, sunlight will, will put its own image of, of lightness on anything that there is. Okay? And that's the idea then of this word of God, that the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, is burning in a pleasant way his image upon us and, and making us to be like him. And so that the world, yes, first indistinctly, but increasingly says they've been with Jesus. You see, that's the way it works. Now, if that's true of wood, by the way, it's all the more true of film, all the more true of the media that would be in our, our phone cameras how it works is that the light comes and burns its image onto those, that little that, that medium. And we have then that, that perfect image of that. Well, one day we'll have that. Um, one day we'll be exactly like that, of a perfect, more than photographic image of the Lord Jesus Christ in the new heavens and the new earth. But now who does that? Well, the, the reality fits the image. It fits the type Okay, the wood doesn't work very hard trying to make you know, some changes. The film media doesn't work hard in this. It's passive as it receives the light. The light is what is doing the work. And friends, so it is with our sanctification. We do not think that we save ourselves in justification, and we do not think that we sanctify ourselves. Now, does God use our works? Does he work in concert with our good works and our sanctification? Obviously so. There's no other way that that could be the case. 
But that doesn't mean that we are uh, the ones who get the glory for it. It doesn't mean that it's we properly doing it. But rather, at the end of time, God is going to look at every one of us and say, Behold my workmanship. And if anyone here can raise their hand and say, actually, I sanctified myself. Now, he justified me, but through my hard work and obedience to the law, I am, you know, as, as beautiful and perfect as I am. Well, of course, that's crazy. Um, no one could say that. And God doesn't share his glory with another. And aren't we thankful that he is the one, the Lord is the one who sanctifies us Now, as I say, it's a sign particularly that uh, you may know I'm the Lord who sanctifies you, but I want to say in general it is also public identity with this covenant Lord. It's a sign, right? Like every other sign and seal, I'll mention this in the application, but the, the sacraments have everything to do with public identity with Christ. You can be a Muslim, you can go to any Bible study you want to, you can even go to church services, but if you get baptized, now you're in trouble. Because you have really made that identification with Christianity, and they know that. Okay, well, that's the idea of a sign. We don't, there's no special clothing that we wear to identify us as, as Christians, but of these signs. And there are, this, there are the sacraments, and there's the Lord's Day, right? Those are these two things. How do you know who are Christians? Well, things work the way that they should be. It's the people who are taking a rest on now the first day of the week in the Christian Sabbath. We identify with the covenant Lord in our reception of this sign. We take the sign upon us. Now, if we refuse the sign and say, no, I don't want this Lord, I don't want his law, I don't want this identification, well, of course, it doesn't work. And we look like anyone else in the world. But if you want to know who the Christians are today, you just go around and see who's observing the Sabbath And that's at least the idea of this sign that is upon us. I'll go on in verse 14. You shall keep the Sabbath, therefore, for it is holy to you. Everyone who profanes it shall surely be put to death. And just to stop right there, you have to understand the nature of every sin. We are sinning against an infinite God. And all the ways in which we sin against him, it is deserving of death. Friends, look, if eating a fruit was in the day you shall eat of it, you shall surely die. What about taking God's own holy day and trampling it underfoot? All right, That was just a fruit. This is his day in which he says, this is the particular thing that is precious to me. Well, we know that all sin is deserving of death. And aren't we all the more thankful then for the Lord Jesus Christ who died for just such sins? For whoever does any work in it, that person shall be cut off from among his people. Work shall be done for six days. But the seventh is a Sabbath of rest, holy to the Lord. Whoever does any work on the Sabbath day, he shall surely be put to death. Now God has made it very clear that this is something that is holy to him. Now, it may be that it's not holy to you. Um, And that's not surprising. We live in a godless and apostate age. And the church, for the most part, is very poorly taught. But God says, it's holy to me. And friends, I would say, if we know what's good for us, that we would adopt God's taste on things, God's evaluation of things. And the things that he says are holy are the things that must be holy to us. Now, the funny thing is that people who don't receive the Lord's day as holy make other things to be holy. 
And as I mentioned, the Roman Catholics, that's the great irony of it. Even as they reject God's word, on, on, for instance, on lawful vocations, and they make up some other vocation that's not lawful. And likewise with the Lord's, they make up all kinds of holy uh, days, saint this day and saint the other day, in which you better observe, right? And of certain other kind of feasts and observances, which you better do. But they utterly neglect the Sabbath day. And they make every sort of provision for the flesh to provide for those who have no intention of keeping the Lord's day at all. Well, friends, the Lord gets to decide what's holy and what's not. And I hope that we're willing to give him that honor in our lives for him to decide. Every once in a while I, still, I, I hear some Christians who say, well, as the principle is that you rest one day in seven. And which day, that's up, up to you. Well, <laughs> come on now. Um, I, I can tell you how well that would fly in the military, um, where you, you say you establish some principle and, 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 and people just randomly say, well, this is my day off, sir. Um, you know, that, this is insane. Because you're utterly dishonoring whoever is in authority to you to take that honor to yourself to decide what day that's going to be. In any, how, in any work we, at, at, at the office, whoever's in charge of the office says, these are the working hours. Right? And in a household, these are the times that we'll observe this and that and the other. It's to the dishonor of whoever, if, if someone in that household or someone in that workplace says, well, no, actually, I'm going to take a day off today, or I'm going to work whenever all the rest of you have a day off. No, it is to God's honor. In fact, it is precisely to his honor that he got to change the day. And I know that we've recently said it, so I won't restate the whole of that, that sermon but the change of that day is precisely because the, the raising of the Lord Jesus Christ was such a stupendous event in the history of the work of redemption that he could not leave it as it was, merely as a remembrance and memorial of the creation of the universe, which was pretty important. But even more so was the, the rising again of his own beloved son, having accomplished our salvation on the first day of the week. And so we remember that. We memorialize that. And all the more it is the sign indeed of Christian believers. Because we know that the Jews continue remembering only the creation. Whereas we remember and memorialize as God has directed us in his word in the New Testament um, to remember the Lord's rising again. Well, in all these things, it is a holy rest, meaning it's not merely a, a, a rest in some objective sense like we take every night for our bodies, but it is a holy rest, a way, a, a something that only special people get to do, a special set-aside activity, different than the world and, and precious to the Lord, in which it is our honor to participate. Again, if we think about how God values all the things that we do, I've just said that he values what we do six days out of the week. It's not meaningless to him. He calls you into these things and enables you to do it through his spirit. And then in particular on the Lord's day, what a value it is to him as you honor and glorify him. He is glorified as his people refrain from work and of even of, of otherwise lawful recreations, as our catechism says, and give ourselves to the Lord of a day of rest and of worship. He is honored by that. And if there's nothing else we can do, we can at least do that much. Well, as I say, this is what again, kids? Holy rest, holy work. Holy work, holy rest. These two things in wonderful proportion.
And so what are the applications of this holy work and holy rest? Well, under the category of this holy work, number one, um, I'm going to take the opportunity to just go for it because I don't, I don't think I'll ever have this opportunity again in my lifetime. So I'm going to talk about skilled workmen for All Saints Church. How about that? Okay, I, I want us to see of all the times in the providence of God to have this text before us, this is the one time. And I understand. I understand there is a categorical difference between God's own providing for the tabernacle and then for the, the temple. But in terms of principle, these things absolutely do provide. We have one, as far as I know, one opportunity in this generation to go and do a beautiful job on a, a beautiful church. And there is nothing that this church doesn't need. It's amazing. It's perfect. Now look at the things that are, are mentioned here in our chapter, verse 4. To design artistic works, to work in gold, in silver, and bronze, cutting jewels for setting, carving wood, and all manner of workmanship. And then in verse 7, the tabernacle of meeting, the ark of the testimony, the mercy seat, all the, ta- the, the furnishings, all the furniture of the tabernacle, the table and its utensils, the pure gold lampstand with all of its utensils, they needed lighting, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering with its utensils, the laver and its base, the garments of ministry, the holy garments of Aaron the priest, and the garments of his sons, the minister's priest, the anointing oil, the sweet incense for the holy place, according to all that I've commanded you shall do. That's a long list of trades, a long list of disciplines to be involved in, and all those things needed to be done for the tabernacle. Now, again, it is not exactly precisely the same, but using these biblical principles, let's say that we need all the trades and disciplines. Let me just mention some of them. Stonemasons, lots and lots of stone, and, and, and lots of it needs some kind of little attention here. Nothing major, just repointing, repointing here, there, and the other. Roofing, again, nothing major, but, but uh, flashing and, and lead bits and things like that that need to be done in order to keep it... We, we weatherproof for a long time, we pray. Builder, in terms of the kitchen and the toilets and the offices. Plastering and painting. Look, even gold foil gilding, there will be a little bit of that. Even something that, that looks like what we were talking about there. Lighting, uh, extremely challenging things. Wow, what do you know? We happen to have a lighting engineer. Isn't that wonderful? A one-off brass chandelier that is, is both decorative and is a main source of downlighting and uplighting. Uh, the, the, the ellipse, the sides, marble tiling, carpentry, joinery for all the, the many wonderful mahogany things we have in there, plumbing, heating, electrician, audio engineer. It's, it's the, the challenge of this year. The best audio engineers that work in this this year, this is their project to get All Saints to, up to snuff. And we're, we're part of that. Simon's part of that, leading that. Uh, piano technician. I, I've said, look, if I were not called to be a military officer and, and now a, a, a minister, I would have loved to have been a piano tech because they're involved in absolutely everything. Well, in God's goodness, we may have the opportunity to get a really, really good piano, and we want it to be the best that we can. Would it be illegitimate for us to pray for whoever is working on that to give us the very best? I don't think so. Uh, landscaping, we have this beautiful big graveyard and churchyard that we can, it, it needs everything too. All the trees, the big trees have died. We need to plant new ones and we need to, to tend it and we need to move some of these gravestones and, and all the rest of that goes along with it. Polishing, one of the finest Georgian church interiors in the country and it's all this mahogany that needs to be polished. Cleaning, you know one of the, the number one thing that I look forward to having our own building? That we can clean it. Okay? 
because it is a, a continual frustration, both me as a pastor, as I bring guests here, me as a father, as our kids have been on this floor, um, that we are looking forward to the day in which we can clean it. And I pray that the Lord would fill us with a spirit of diligence and willingness to, 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 to have an appetite to throw ourselves into this, whether in unskilled ways or in skilled ways, if you have it. This is your opportunity, okay? Don't miss it. This is your opportunity. If you're practically minded, uh, you're not going to get another one like this. Um, and let, let's go for it. The Lord has, has brought us in unity to say we're going to move ahead. And we now have the opportunity to put in practice these kind of things as God calls people into these callings. Well, so we need workmen for the church. And secondly, I'd say in more general terms, and this doesn't, isn't limited to this one time, but that we should honor the working trades. All right? Now let's think again about her. He had a prominent position in the nation. As I say, it seems that he was third in command. That's emphasized later on in Exodus 24:14. And he said to the elders, wait here for us until we come back to you. Indeed, Aaron and Hur are with you. If any man has a difficulty, let him go to them. He was third in command. And, and so let me just ask you a, a kind of um, rhetorical question. Elders, would we be happy if our son or grandson was like Bezalel? And I hope the answer is yes. I hope so. Because I know that the general direction in the culture is very much the other way, as if the professions were the only thing that we would ever want our, our children to be into, aspiring to. But if God honored that kind of skillful workmanship uh, with his own spirit and with this section of scripture, who are we to denigrate it? All right? I actually don't find quite as much about some of the professions that we, we spend a lot of time thinking about. Um, so we, we should. In fact, the larger catechism, 141, on the Eighth Commandment says that we should have, quote, a provident care and study to get, keep, use, and dispose these things which are necessary and convenient for the sustenation of our nature and suitable to our condition, a lawful calling and diligence in it. So what we pray for is a lawful calling, right? But having that, diligence in it, diligence in it. All right, that's the way that our children glorify the Lord, particularly our, our sons outside of the, the home and our, our daughters, Lord willing, if, if the Lord provides husband for them in the home, it's diligence in their lawful calling, doing our work all to the glory of God. That's why it says in Colossians 3.22, bond servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, not with eye service as men pleasers, but in sincerity of heart, fearing God. And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance for you serve the Lord Christ. Oh, that is so different, isn't it? Than the kind of thing that goes today which you're only going to do what your boss lets you get away with or, you know, you, you will do exactly to that standard and nothing more, right? It's so different. You know, we were recently in Switzerland and they do two things, specific things, that have made them very prosperous as a nation, right? They, they, they bank and they make watches. And they do these things very well, so much so that the rest of the world comes to them for those things. And that's because, I think, of the Protestant Reformation. I think that they were made possible because of this Protestant work ethic. It's possible where workmen are perfectly honest and hold themselves to the highest standards, 
doing these things as perfectly as they know how, not because someone is watching them, but because their own standard is doing things in the sight of God. Now, friends, that's what we must do in everything. All of our lives, we are in, in the view, in the aspect, in the overwatching of God himself. And that's why we do them. Not because somebody notices or doesn't on this earth. Now, the Jews, of course, do this. They have the same Old Testament. They have this, test, this, this chapter. They know about it. And so they have a tradition of fine worksmanship, of, of goldsmithing and silversmithing and diamond cutting and so on. But it should be no less so among uh, we as Presbyterians and, and Reformed. And the only way for that to be is that we honor the working trades. Now, we don't say that, that our, our children should aspire to unskilled labor. Uh, there's nothing dishonorable about that, but rather that it should, yes, in, in aspire to something that demonstrates skill and diligence in which skill and diligence and wisdom are rewarded because we can rightly pray that the Lord grant them such wisdom through the power of, their, of his spirit and that these things would bring glory to God. We do, so we honor these, these trades. Thirdly, I say we need to work six days. I won't spend too much time on it, but I need this reminder. I think you need this reminder. Students, you really need this reminder, okay? Because uh, let's be honest, um, university these days is as hard as you choose to make it. And you could probably do almost next to nothing for most of your time and still scrape by with a, a passing third or something like that. But do you want to do that? Uh, is, is that what is pleasing to the Lord? Certainly not. right? And so you have to develop at this point in your life if you are a student. And let me say again, not everyone has to be a student. Um, but if you are a student, you have this upon you. You need to be your own taskmaster. You need to be setting your own standards to glorify God in your studies. Be a student if that's what you call yourself. Be a scholar. Do it to the glory of God. And if you're doing instead being an, an apprentice, if you're instead already working, if you're in the armed forces, then do that to the glory of God. But please, don't just imitate the listless, pathetic students around you that do practically nothing but play games all day. All right? Develop that work ethic that glorifies God. Work six days. And I don't say this doesn't apply to the rest of us, of course, it does. In fact, at every stage of life, it comes with its own temptations not to do this. And particularly when one is retired, because then it's not set. Then you have to find creative ways to fill that time with useful work. Well, if anybody has a problem and difficulty figuring out something useful to do, uh, I happen to have a large family. Pam could use some help, and I think there's some other ones out there as well. And, and we can help you, retired people. Um, but I think, actually, that there are plenty of things, whether the church, your neighborhood, the things that God has already called you to do, um, and we know that life itself becomes increasingly dif- difficult, uh, and there's less capacity. But in all these things, may the Lord enable us to remember that we're supposed to work six days. Fourthly and finally, we should rest the seventh. And I want to emphasize not only the fact that God is a sovereign over our time and gets to, to, to do us, but also as a badge of honor. Okay? Again, I have to admit to you how, how neat it was to wear the uniform again last year. And in particular, as was with a certain unit, it, it has a very striking emblem. Um, and uh, I was just looking at the patch the other day. Um, it's not a particularly godly patch. It has a skull and it has four stars around it. 
but it's the most honored Marine unit uh, in, in all history, the Marine Raiders. And it's kind of neat to, to have that emblem at all, uh, even to wear it uh, you know, somewhere that's not visible because you don't wear those kind of things on uniforms. Um, how much more so to wear the emblem of being part of the Christian church? And the way we do that every week, we put on that uniform, we put on that badge of honor by being part of, of this great thing that God has given in the Sabbath day. Not merely of showing up, it doesn't, actually the badge doesn't appear just if you show up to, to church briefly on one service. It's of keeping the whole day as a special honor and treasure to God. And when we do that, we wear this badge. And if there are angels observing, they can easily see who's who. Because God's people are, are observing this thing. And God himself mainly the one to whom all of our work and all of our resting is directed, is pleased and glorified as we do that to him. So may the Lord enable us to have holy work and holy rest. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we're thankful for the richness and depth and simplicity on the one hand, but also incredible complexity and intricacy of your word. And Lord, we're thankful that this is true of the teaching, the biblical teaching with regard to our time and with regard to our work and with regard to our rest. We know, Lord, that there's absolutely no point in learning from this wicked world the way that we should work and the way that we should rest and recreate because it gets it so completely wrong. But, Lord, your word is more than sufficient to provide us all that we need to do these things. And, Lord, we, I pray that every last one of us would leave here encouraged and energized that every part of every day, all of their, their time, can and should be and, and well easily will be made glorifying to you in serving in our lawful vocations six days out of the week and resting the seventh. We pray, Lord, that you'd enable us to do it. We know that all of our enemies, the world, the flesh, and the devil, stand against these things. But we ask, Lord, even as we, forgive, we ask forgiveness for the ways in which we've not done it, and, Lord, we pray all the more, though, that you would grant us a great desire in this new year to set good patterns and um, to do these things and to wear the badge that glorifies you. We pray this in Jesus' name.